Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. So after World War II, when Korea was divided, both the North and South saw themselves as the legitimate government of the entire undivided peninsula. And they still do. Both states still appoint governors to provinces that the other occupies. And those governors will never see or have never seen what they are putatively governors of. To this day, neither North Korea nor South Korea acknowledges the legal right of the other to exist. And to this day, unification is still the declared policy of each of them. But that's today. Now there are decades of reality to say otherwise. Now there's a ton of history to push back against those lofty and unrealistic stated policies. Korean unification will probably never happen. If it does happen, it will be extremely difficult, if not catastrophic for a great many people. But this was not the case in the years leading up to the Korean War. In the late 40s, both governments, kind of rightly, saw the other half of Korea as unfinished business, and both intended to attack. And really, why not? After all, the division of the Korean peninsula didn't really have anything to do with Koreans. It was not southern or northern Koreans that drew a line across the 38th parallel. It was not anyone in Korea who said that these two governments should be very different. The Americans and the Soviets decided that. And these two governments said, hey, we have collaborators on the other side who are interfering with our work as leaders of a unified Korean nation. So both North and South want an invasion. They both want war. And a few things about South Korea at this point. Nowadays, South Korea is considered a pretty cool, high-tech country that does not have a terrifying, murderous, would-be dictator as its leader. When we think of South Korea today, we think of good things like record-setting internet connectivity, the Olympics, and really, really good professional StarCraft players. But that's today. In 1950, South Korea was not there yet. At that point, the North was considered a more built-up, industrialized, and generally with-it part of the peninsula, and most of what was south of Seoul was considered something of a rural backwater. And what's more, the South Korean leader, Syngman Rhee, was hardly the type of guy whom you'd expect to run a modern, democratic, kind of nice country. Uh, again, there were rumblings of a genuine grassroots Korean state after World War II, but a lot of the American authorities thought that they were a bit too socialistic for their liking, so instead we get a strongman like Rhee, who was basically installed by the Americans because he wasn't a communist. He wasn't a socialist. This guy seemed competent. He seemed educated. He had traveled extensively throughout his life. He had lived in the U.S. He had been involved with politics in Korea and China and elsewhere. He had known several prominent American leaders, not least of which was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And he seemed like maybe a good choice to be the not-communist, not-too-socialist leader of post-war South Korea. 
And then he turned into a downright authoritarian strongman nightmare because Sigmund Rhee had a habit of making thousands of his political opponents disappear. And as we'll see later, he and many other South Korean leaders came to bad ends. For years and years and years, South Korean politics was kind of an authoritarian garbage fire. So at this point, when you think of South Korea, don't think of what we have now. Don't think of Olympics and StarCraft. Think of a struggling rural state with a leader who has descended into authoritarianism as soon as he has a taste of power and a population whose actual preferred government got cast aside by foreign occupiers. So keep that in mind. Sigmund Rhee was smart enough to know that South Korea, on its own, would not be able to take the North. He needed assistance, so he went to the Americans— and he asked the Truman administration for both approval and backup for an invasion. Now, Harry Truman, probably making the right choice here, said, No, no, we're not going to let you start a war. Stop it. However, like somebody wishing on a monkey's paw or making a deal with a genie who has a great sense of irony, Ree would get the war he wanted. Because on the other side of the 38th parallel, Kim Il-sung also wanted an invasion. However, Sigmund Rhee knew he needed American backup. He knew he needed another power helping him out with an invasion of the North. Kim Il-sung just needed what he had. He knew he was in a stronger position, and he was ready to swoop down past the 38th parallel and pick off that government that he saw as illegitimate. And honestly, he probably could have won. A quick, coordinated surprise attack from the industrialized north could have swept through and defeated the rural, unprepared south. But Kim Il-sung needed permission, even though at this point he is already trying to break away from the Soviet Union. His sort of homegrown Korean nationalism is very different already from Soviet communism, but he needs permission from Stalin. So... He asked Joseph Stalin, who was his informal higher-up in the Eastern Bloc, if he could invade the South, and Stalin said, yeah, go for it. Knock yourself out. Stalin didn't think that the United States or anyone else would really care about South Korea. He thought that this would be a small war, a short war, and one that no one else would be interested in expending blood or treasure, or political will in stopping. Stalin was wrong. It was a regional war, but it wasn't a minor one. Nor was it short. And other powers certainly did seem to care about what was going on in Korea, because after World War II, on the American side, there were the first rumblings of what would later be called a domino theory, or containment, among American foreign policy intellectuals, However, it wasn't quite called that yet, but a lot of folks within the American foreign policy sort of establishment realized that Soviet expansion was going to be a thing, both in terms of Soviet territory and in terms of Soviet influence. Now, what to do about it? There's a famous document in American foreign policy. It's called The Long Telegram, and it is by a diplomat named George Kennan, who was stationed in Moscow uh, just after World War II. 
1946, in this long telegram, he outlines how he thinks, based on his experience in Moscow, the Soviet Union wants to spread its influence. Now, Kennan, in this document, doesn't come out and say that he prefers war. In fact, just the opposite. In the long telegram, Kennan comes out on the side of coexistence. He believes that capitalist and socialist states can coexist just fine. And he also believes that the United States and the Soviet Union can probably coexist okay. But later on, at the end of the telegram, he outlines what he thinks the United States should do to check Soviet expansion. And one of the things he says rather pointedly is, quote, Soviet power, unlike that of Hitlerite Germany, is neither schematic nor adventuristic. It does not work by fixed plans. It does not take unnecessary risks. Impervious to logical reason, it is highly sensitive to logic of force. For this reason, it can easily withdraw. And it usually does when strong resistance is encountered at any point. Thus, if the adversary has sufficient forces to make clear his readiness to use it, he rarely has to do so. If situations are properly handled, there need be no prestige-engaging showdowns." Unquote. So what Kennan is saying there is that Soviet power does not want to engage in any showdowns. They don't want a war. So if there is like a sufficiently scary military conflict, they'll back down. They'll get spooked and go away. So you know what? We can just sort of expand really big like a puffer fish, look pretty scary, say that, hey, we're prepared for war, and then Soviet influence in a given arena will back down. And that is a type of thinking and a type of logic that is informing the Truman administration in 1950. So on June 25th of 1950, northern forces crossed the 38th parallel and invaded South Korea. And in another world where you had a different sort of thought pattern happening on the American side, this might have gone totally unnoticed by the rest of the globe. Other powers might have just let this attack happen and let the North take over the South. But, again, the U.S. was paying attention to Soviet expansion, and they thought force and a show of force would mean a hasty Soviet retreat. There were, as you will see in the next episode, some flaws with this line of thinking. But rather than the U.S. declaring war on Kim's forces, after all, declaring war kind of means you acknowledge the legitimacy of an opponent. Um, war is for other states, other governments, other entities that you think kind of have a right to exist. The Truman administration wanted another tactic. This wouldn't be a war necessarily of state against state. No, instead, this would be the United Nations declaring a police action to enforce international norm. So yeah, the Truman administration wanted to make this look like the international community was basically doing maintenance, swatting a pest, enforcing international law. And given a specific set of circumstances inside the United Nations at the time, they were actually able to pull it off. We don't really think about the United Nations really doing anything military-wise. There are peacekeeping forces. There are international monitors. But when it comes to the UN actually, like, fighting someone, that almost basically never happens. But in 1950, the stars were aligned. For the UN to take action at that time, 
it had to have the unanimous approval of the Security Council, which was made up of the U.S., the U.K., France, China, and the Soviet Union. Now, the U.K. and France were on board with the American plan for this so-called police action, for everyone coming together to swat down this rebel faction, this pest that was attacking the legitimate government of a unified Korea. But you're probably wondering about the two Eastern Bloc countries that are on the Security Council. What about China? And what about the USSR? Well, at the time, China's seat in the UN wasn't held by actual mainland China. You didn't have Mao's government with a seat on the Security Council. No, instead, the government in Beijing, that is the real Chinese government that was actually running things and making decisions and making life pretty horrible for most people who lived in China, that wasn't there. Instead, you had the nationalist government in exile based in Taiwan holding the Chinese seat in the UN. So a Maoist delegation at the UN that could have vetoed this action, they just weren't there. And as for the Soviets, they also weren't there for the vote, and their reasons were related to China. Earlier, the Soviet delegation had introduced a resolution to the United Nations that would have given China's spot to the mainland Maoist government rather than the government in exile in Taiwan. That resolution failed. So, in protest, the Soviets just walked out. This turned out to be a bad idea, because that gave the U.S. and its allies the window they needed to pass a resolution authorizing the U.N. to take a quote-unquote, police action against Kim Il-sung's forces. The Soviets and the mainland Chinese weren't in the building to say no. However, the U.S. and its allies would have to act fast. Kim Il-sung's forces had surprised the South, and it took very little time for them to take Seoul, Incheon, and most of the rest of the peninsula. The attack began in June, and by August, Sigmund Rhee's government had fled the capital, and southern forces were beaten back to a single corner of the peninsula. The south was now a little patch of land surrounding Busan in southeast Korea. Northern victory seemed quick, decisive, and imminent. The south, it seemed, would be beaten back into the sea. But the Security Council had spoken, and UN forces were on their way. As always, this is a listener-supported podcast. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to do that thing. Thank you, all of you who contribute every month. Seriously, um, I wouldn't be able to do this. I couldn't afford to do this without your monthly support. If you haven't already, go on iTunes, give the podcast ratings and reviews. That helps other people find the show. Uh, I'm on social media, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. And I'm at Joe Streckert on Twitter. Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>